Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation or take out a subscription. We have special rates for students and retirees. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive the daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Hadil Abdelati. Hadil is a 19-year-old law student at the University of Cambridge, and I'm pleased to say a contributor to the Arab Digest newsletter. A human rights advocate, she has reported on and interrogated current affairs using TikTok to promote human rights and to update her followers on the situation in Sudan. Hadil has been involved with the United Nations, the UK Parliament, and NGOs engaged in the effort to protect rights. Currently, she's serving as secretary of the Girton College Law Society, Cambridge. Hadil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can we begin with you and TikTok? When you started and what motivated you to use social media? Well, I think social media is a new space for us all. But for me, it was in 2019 when the social media blackout happened. I realized that, well, people in Sudan were not going to be able to um, express what was happening there. And there were grave threats to people's lives. Many people died. Loads were injured. And there was a media blackout. So it was very hard to communicate this to the wider world. And so I felt it was very important to use the platform and the opportunity that I had with social media to amplify the voices of people in Sudan. And since then, I realized that social media can be a very powerful tool in sparking conversations about some of the most serious social issues and some of the humanitarian crises that are taking place in the world. Brutal dictatorships don't tend to have any mercies or boundaries, just like the brutal dictatorship of Amr al-Bashir that people in Sudan have faced for over 30 years. And I didn't realize how powerful social media was until I picked up my phone and, and used it. And so TikTok kind of came after that. It was conversations on the murder of George Floyd and other social issues that were taking place. And I realized that this was something that was continued to keep doing and something that I wanted to progress with and develop and see where I could go with it. Because 2019, that the, the extraordinary peaceful protest to remove, as you said, a dictator who'd been ruling Sudan for 30 years. Uh, and that protest was uh, became violent, didn't it, in, in terms of how the military responded. There was, a, there was a massacre. And as you say, that was a blackout. But you were able to what, speak to people outside Sudan, speak to the diaspora, to, to fellow uh, Sudanese. How did that How did that work? So, yeah, the protests in Sudan from the civilian side were always peaceful. So one of our protest chants was Silmiya, Silmiya, Diddal Haramiya, which means um, peace, peace against these thieves or these bad people, essentially. So the civilians always kept it peaceful. And one of the most devastating things about what happened in 2019 was that it was a massacre of innocent protesters at a peaceful sit-in. And so it really shows the contrast between 
the aims and the methods of the Sudanese people and then the the regime that we were up against essentially and I noticed that you know there was the blue for Sudan campaign there were members of the diaspora young people taking to social media and using their platforms and I was like if they're doing it and it's helping then I should also join in too um, I don't think up until that point I'd really use social media I'd always been like oh I want to start a YouTube one day maybe I'll you know pick up a camera and start making videos but I'd never really taken it seriously up until that point and of course there was a big reason to you know people's lives were at stake the future of my home country was at stake as well and it's uh, worth reminding folks that you were 15 at the time um and TikTok what is it about TikTok that you said yeah this is it this is the platform I'm going to use well, TikTok was a new platform, essentially. Um, Instagram has its own character. Every social media platform, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, albeit, will have their own unique identity. TikTok was new. And it was actually a recommendation from a friend who said, you know what, use Instagram to talk about these social issues. Why not try a different platform as well? See how that works. And I really liked the fact that you could reach so many young people on TikTok and young people who really cared about these issues, but didn't necessarily know what to do, how to take action, how to make their voices heard. And what kind of response did you get then? And do you get? Because that's um, a part of the whole process, isn't it? Yeah, of course. So there are a range of responses that you'd get. So for example, when I was talking about George Floyd and racism in the US and the UK and so forth, obviously you do get the mixed bag of responses. However, what you do get a lot of the time is people expressing how much actually they didn't consider things from this perspective or actually that's a really useful way to put things and now they know how to challenge certain language how to challenge certain behaviors or how to feel like there are people out there who are actually doing the work and trying to ensure that you know horrific instances like what happened with George Floyd don't happen again. It's almost kind of an educating process, isn't it? I mean, as yeah. you say, people are just not aware. And then when you explain to them and show them and tell them, it's kind of like the light goes on. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, a lot of my you know, peers on TikTok will describe themselves as educated, sorry, educators rather, and thought leaders or opinion leaders, um, because these are all adjectives that kind of go into what a social issues or an educator on TikTok would do. And for yourself, you know, you, you're what, 19 years old. It, it, it's a very, it's a burden, isn't it? A responsibility. Do you feel that? Um, I mean, there's different ways to frame anything. For me, I deeply care about ensuring that human rights abuses don't continue to happen. And I have that specific relationship with what's happening with my home country, Sudan. So being from Sudan means that I've witnessed human rights abusers on the news, from word of mouth, and all the catastrophic impacts that that could have. And so fighting against human rights abusers is something that has always been part of who I am. You could frame it as a burden, you could frame it as so many other things, but actually I think it's more important to recognise that these are changes that just have to happen in society. And these are conversations and this is discourse that has to take place in order to ensure that there is change and there is progress. 
You know, preparing for our conversation, I watched a, a video on the Middle East Eye website that you did at the time of the October 25, uh, 2021 coup of General Burhan. And you quoted a Sudanese saying, it is impossible to go back. We are not going back. And you spoke about the strength and the courage of the Sudanese people who had already seen off one dictator in the current crisis, this ongoing war between Burhan and his rival Hameti. That strength is being tested once again. What are you hearing now, uh, Hadil, from friends and relatives in Sudan about the situation today? I mean, the situation has been described by the United Nations Secretary General as catastrophic. Friends and family are talking about how, you know, this is an incredibly difficult and terrifying experience. But what I am seeing and hearing is that it's still the same resilience. The resistance committees and people of all over Sudan are doing so much. I'm not going to dismiss the reality because people in Sudan are caught in a war where hundreds and thousands have been displaced. Many have been injured and lost their lives. The damage to infrastructure, which was already severely crippled and struggling during the dictatorship, is now really horrifying. And, you know, I must recall the story of the orphanage where at least 50 children, two dozen of which were babies, died. And, it, you know, there was this quote going around social media that, you know, the babies, children need to be fed and looked after and there's simply no one there to do that. You know, war knows no mercy. And at the hands of Al-Burhan and Hamidi, this has become an expectation almost. Um, there are stories of elderly people dying as they seek refuge. And it's honestly a really difficult and terrifying thing to have to experience, of course, and then hear about it's It's very challenging. But even then, like I said at the start, the power and the strength of people in Sudan there was a Sudanese protest chant, this saying, it's impossible to go back. We're not going back. And still that refusal to go back to a dictatorship, because this is what happens, you know, when you have dictatorships, when you have regimes that completely disregard human rights. And so it is just so incredible to see people still having that faith that, you know, this is not something we're going back to. Mm, yeah. The the story about the, the babies that died in the orphanage, uh, what happened there? So essentially, because of the war, the orphanage didn't have staff um, and so weren't able to get access to food, water, etc. for the children and many ended up dying. As you say, it's uh, war is appalling, and and when children, when babies die, it, it it is even even more appalling. Yet, despite the continuing violence and brutality, Western media has its attention turned elsewhere. You know, I go and look at the uh, BBC website, for example. There's no mention of Sudan. I look at the newspapers uh, in in North America virtually no mention of Sudan. What does that say to you? It says many things, I think. Most obviously that the humanitarian and political crisis affecting people in Sudan is not a priority. I was hoping that, you know, 
I had an instinct, essentially. Having seen this in 2019, where we received virtually no media conversations, representations, or reporting, I was hoping that my instinct, that as soon as the Western diplomats were evacuated, attention and concern would cease, would be proved wrong. But unfortunately, indeed, in fact, as soon as the Western diplomats were evacuated, attention and concern for Sudan almost instantly turned away. And I think that shows, like I said at the start, that the humanitarian and political crisis affecting people in Sudan is simply not a priority. That is so disappointing and harmful to see. And secondly, I think it shows that supporting and resolving conflict in Africa, the Middle East, is almost a media spectacle and a dehumanizing enterprise. Um, I'm gonna be very careful with how I articulate this next comment because every conflict which harms the safety and human rights of anyone is utterly deplorable. And the way we navigate these things always requires care, consideration and a united effort. However, there is a deeply unsettling pattern of ambivalence, careless reporting and ignorance with how African crises are treated in comparison to other humanitarian crises, for example, things like Ukraine. And I think that is deeply steeped in ideas of colonialism and imperialism. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and 19-year-old British Sudanese law student, Hadil Abdullati. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Hadil, you retweeted a a tweet recently that read, British news referring to their citizens stuck in Sudan as, quote, British passport holders, unquote, instead of citizens, just because they're ethnically Sudanese and not white. Interrogate that. Do they deserve UK support less because they're not, quote, British enough for you? You know, that what is going on in Sudan lays bare the fault lines of of what you're addressing, which is racism. Yeah, well, it is deeply racist. And, you know, it's incredibly disappointing to see, especially the United Kingdom, put forward consistently this draconian immigration policy, this language that almost criminalizes or politicizes the act of being a refugee and attempts to hide it behind a number of unconvincing policy ideas as harmful and insulting and goes against everything to do with being a refugee, supporting those affected by war and crises far beyond their control. And, you know, it speaks to a desire to completely disregard the rights of those who have been affected in this way. And that uh, phrase that the uh, media constantly uses to describe British citizens of Sudanese descent as British passport holders. These are people who were trapped by the fighting when they returned to visit relatives uh, in Ramadan. You know, hearing British passport holders constantly is quite upsetting because it almost frames us, it doesn't almost, it it practically does frame us as second-class citizens. 
And so even though this directly has the biggest impact on British people in Sudan, it also has an impact of those who are here and have to hear that and think, am I not British enough? Am I not as British as you? And that is deeply upsetting. Yeah, it is. And and Britain's obligations, responsibilities seem to be set aside so easily in these situations. And yet uh, we are very much prepared to back at, as we should, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Uh, it does, for me too, speak very much of of racism and and attitudes that are ingrained and have been around for a very long time. Let me ask you right now, though, about the peace talks that are ongoing in Jeddah between the two sides, between the uh, Berhan and Hameti sides. It's led by the Saudis, supported by the U.S. Uh, do you put much faith in those talks? I think we must always put faith in these processes um, because they're exactly what the revolution is calling for. It's calling for peaceful solutions. It's calling for no more weapons and, and arms in politics, but also the fact that I genuinely believe we must always put our faith in peace processes because the cost, the human cost of war is just fundamentally wrong and too high. And so even when these people these talks have not been working as they should have. I still think we should put faith in these processes because when you've got two army generals like Burhan and Hemeti who have been responsible for genocide, it's very important to be able to step in and try and find some way to stop the violence and enter negotiations. I think that, you know, there has been a decision to continue the ceasefire for another five days. That was the latest thing. But at the same time, clearly there is violence. There is fighting that's going on, uh, particularly Darfur. I'm seeing reports of some horrific uh, uh, situations in Darfur. But as you say, important for a conversation of some sort. But these two characters, Hameti and Berhan, they do not have, by any stretch of the imagination, the best interests of the Sudanese people, do they? No, not at all. So they're two army generals fighting for control of Sudan, using the language of the revolution, using the language of democracy, and almost usurping the civilian role and aim and rebuilding our country after, you know, fighting with our blood, our life, our sweat and our tears. And they are almost taking that on as if it's a caricature for them to try and manipulate us and gaslight us into believing that they're fighting for us. But it's clear that they're not because they're simply killing us. They're fighting for power, for control, yeah, one over the other. Yeah, they're fighting for power of Sudan. So the reason that they started fighting was because... Hameti and Burhan had a disagreement most fundamentally over how the rapid support forces, the RSF, was going to be incorporated into the Sudanese army so that we'd have one singular army and we'd be able to begin a process of disbanding militias. Hameti in charge of the uh, militia, the rapid support forces, RSF, and uh, Burhan in charge of the Sudan armed forces. And both parties disagreed over this because obviously if Hameti was going to forsake his most substantial power in his army, 
then this had to be done under specific conditions and they could not agree over these conditions. And so they decided to break out into clashes, which have, have since spreaded across Sudan. And one of the things that's most concerning is, you know, the Darfur region, which has already seen so much harm and damage, is one where there is very little coverage. And even within the diaspora, there has been criticisms of how not enough discourse on what is happening in Darfur or not enough attention is being given to what's taking place in Darfur. Conflict is, you know, not just in the capital, um, but, you know, spreading. Mm, yeah. Hadil, what needs to happen? What sort of pressure needs to be brought to bear to restore the gains of the revolution? I think we need to support the grassroots work and the humanitarian aid taking place. I think now there are more immediate needs of ensuring people have shelter, food, water, electricity. I mean, these are not necessarily things that are readily available at the moment. The infrastructure of Sudan needs to be restored. And most importantly, we need to bring civilians to the table. This revolution has been civilian-led and the role of the people of Sudan in having those conversations about how the revolution is going to manifest, essentially, cannot be usurped by any other body or any other group. We have to bring civilians to the table. And I think it's important to say that we never actually fully saw the infrastructure of the Omar al-Bashir regime completely re dismantled. Political actors from his regime still had influence, still employed their tactics, even before these clashes. And so bringing these people to account and continuing the process of dismantling a 30-year dictatorship also needs to happen simultaneously in order to ensure that the revolution and the interests of the people of Sudan are protected. How frustrating or angry does it make you that whilst we here in the UK basically are silent, that there are other players, Egypt, for example, backing Burhan, the United Arab Emirates backing Hameti, that the decisions are being made by these outside players, either by their silence or by their direct engagement, while, as you say, the citizens, the people are not part of the conversation, not part of the process. How how frustrating is that for you, Hadil? You know, proxy wars are no novelty, but also other nations, whether neighbouring or from afar, taking advantage of certain political situations or circumstances in order to take resources or influence politics in a way that is desirable for them is no novelty. The involvement of Egypt, the UAE, Saudi Arabia can be traced to so many different political aims or ideas that those nations are pursuing. And so it is frustrating. And it's, I would say it's, it's fundamentally wrong, but that's not necessarily the metric by which international politics operates, unfortunately. I think with the current situation of Sudan, however, it is important that, you know, the international community invest their time and their resources to ensuring that we can stop Hemeti and Burhan fighting against each other. And by that, I mean, you know, it is welcomed that there are negotiations and chairing of these 
peace agreements and discussions because I think that is important, especially when both sides really don't trust each other. Uh, in an article that uh, you wrote for our newsletter, uh, you talked movingly of the power of the people. And I'm going to say this, uh, that uh, for our listeners, if uh, you haven't already read it, I urge you to do so. Uh, you can find it on our website, ArabDigest.org. But here are a couple of sentences you wrote in concluding your article. The spirit of the Sudanese community now fills social media feeds where it once peacefully resided in our streets. Even though it may be momentarily shadowed by the plumes of smoke, hope and community line every road and every pavement still. Sudan dares to dream. Going forward, Hadil, how do you see your role in, in keeping the dream of the revolution alive? So immediately I would say that I am going to continue using my platforms and any opportunities that I get to discuss and interrogate and amplify and raise awareness of what's happening in Sudan. One of the reasons I chose to read law at Cambridge University is so that I could academically research and better understand how complex ideas of human rights, the international community and law play a part in situations like Sudan. Also for myself, like continuing to stay updated and in touch with anything that's taking place, I'm still hopeful that this will eventually pass and this will stop and that our revolution will continue and Sudan will be a democratic and peaceful place. My focus will be on continuing to stay updated and supporting and amplifying what people on the ground in Sudan are doing in order to achieve that goal. Yeah, and, and, and explaining it as you do, and you do so well, uh, to people who may not fully understand or who are not getting the story from other, from other sources. Um, I just want to ask you one more question, Hadil. In, in that Middle East uh, Eye video, you spoke of Kandeka. Have I said that right? Kandeka. Kandaka. Kandaka. You spoke of Kandaka. Tell our listeners what Kandaka means to you. So the term Kandaka itself uh, comes from the name that was given to ancient Nubian warrior queens. And it resurfaced very strongly, again, as a term of empowerment for women in Sudan fighting for freedom from this dictatorship. The role of women in this revolution has been monumental. And so to me, Kandaka becomes every woman in Sudan who has protested, every woman who has lost her life, every woman who's kept going despite the endless cycles of oppression and violence. It's the grandmother and the neighbor who you can simply look at to be reminded of home, hope in the heart of Sudan. Um, and I think Kendaka then becomes a recognition and affirmation of all the sacrifices and the strength of Sudanese women. Well, and you represent that strength so strongly and so well. And uh, and I salute it. And I, and I know that uh, your followers on TikTok are listening and engaging. So keep up the fight, Hadil. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the British Sudanese law student and human rights activist, Hadil Abdelati. Look for her on TikTok. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. 
We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of main analysts and commentators, contributors like Hadil. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.